All right. Well, welcome, guys, again to Beacon. Um, it's good to see so many of you. There's a lot of you here tonight. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, if you can open them to James, we're going to continue in our study of the book of James. And we're going to be in James chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 18 tonight. All right, let me read it for us. This is James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That's God's word. Let's pray. God, as we turn to your word now, and as we just continue to learn from James on this topic of trials, uh, we ask for wisdom, and we know that we lack it, and we know also that you promise that if we ask in faith that you will provide it for us generously. And so, Father, we we ask that you would do that um, through the preaching of your word. Help us to um, learn from it so that we can endure trials faithfully, so that we can get out of them uh, all that you intend for us to get from them. So God, thank you again for our time together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1940, uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote his book titled The Problem of Pain. Maybe some of you have read it before. Uh, It's an intellectual discussion on the problem of evil and suffering. And when Lewis wrote it, he was no stranger to suffering. Uh, By the time he had authored that book, he had lost both of his parents when he was relatively young. Uh, He was sent to a boarding school to live where there was an abusive headmaster who was actually later declared insane He went to the war, World War I, and he was wounded in the war. Uh, And so he he was no stranger to suffering. But Lewis was very aware of the difference between, like, intellectual discussion on suffering, the theory of the problem of pain, and actually experiencing it, it himself. This is what he said in the preface of the book. He said, the only purpose of the book is to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. For the far higher task of teaching fortitude and patience, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified. Two decades later, 1961, Lewis wrote another book, and that book was titled A Grief Observed. And maybe some of you have heard of that one. And as you might know, the grief that he's talking about in that title is actually the death of his wife. Um, Her name was Joy. And they had only been married three short years before she passed away. And, and the book, A Grief Observed, is his very brutally honest diary of his thoughts, his struggles, um, trying to process 
her, her death. And if you read those two books side by side, The Problem of Pain, A Grief Observed, uh, it's almost like you're reading two totally different authors. Uh, in The Problem of Pain, Lewis has this really insightful, quotable line where he says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Maybe you've heard that line before. It's kind of a famous line. And he shows us, he understands, like, theologically, that suffering is one of God's means for calling his people back to him, right? It's God's megaphone to get our attention. But in A Grief Observed, when he's writing about his wife, uh, he, he says, he very honestly says that when you do turn to God, that he is nowhere to be found. And this is what he actually says. He says, go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Now, maybe not many of you have uh, ever thought or, or said something as honest or as dramatic as, as Lewis does here in his writings, but I think many of us can like, at least understand where he's coming from, right? For some of you, um, maybe your greatest challenge to your faith is those really tough intellectual questions about like God and suffering and the problem of evil and uh, like how can God be good? How can he be loving if evil is a reality, if it exists? And maybe that's like actually a challenge to your faith. But I think for, for more of us, probably, some of the greatest challenges to your faith is when pain and suffering you know, that pain and suffering that you were so okay with talking about and watching from a distance, when that actually shows up in your life, right? When that actually uh, shows up on your doorstep, when you actually have to deal with it and experience it. Uh, Lewis continues, he says, What grounds has Joy's death, his wife, given me for doubting all that I believe? We were even promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accepted it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in the imagination. Uh, you see, we can know all that we need to know about trials and suffering. We can know uh, maybe a theological answer for why they exist, right? And the passage we looked at last week kind of helped us with that. But I think from this opening illustration, it's a very different experience when you're actually in the middle of it all, right? It's, it's totally different. And suddenly, even though you have all this knowledge about God, you can, you can find yourself questioning God. Um, you, can, you can find yourself wondering whether God is actually going to follow through on all the things that you know and all the things that he has said. And maybe for you tonight, maybe you've seen that happen in your life. Or maybe you've seen that happen in the life of someone else that you know. Right? If you think of um, other believers, maybe you can think of someone who has been just indelibly shaped by suffering for good. Right? Like they've just grown a massive amount because of some significant suffering uh, in their life. But I'm sure for as many people as you can think of in that example, you can probably think of people who have changed for the worse because of suffering. Right, where suffering has just totally shipwrecked them or uh, changed them and caused them to question their faith, um, and it's made them worse, right? not better. 
Oh, it's, it's that very, very real experience that I think James is talking about in our passage tonight. Okay, let's just reveal real, or review real quick what we talked about last time. We were in verses 1 to 8. Um, James taught us that as believers, right, we can count it all joy when we encounter various kinds of trials in our lives. And remember what we said about that uh, when James says count it all joy is he is talking more about how we should think rather than how we should feel. Right? So he's not saying that as Christians that we are just supposed to be happy, right? We're just supposed to be like overly optimistic about things or we're supposed to have just positive vibes all the time. That's not what he's saying when he says count it all joy. He does say that we have reason for a real joy, right? A genuine as opposed to superficial joy in trials. And the reason for that is because we know that there's a bigger purpose to our trials, Right, verse 4, he says that the purpose of our trials is to make us more mature and perfect in Christ. So that's verses one, uh, 1 to 4. Now, of course, that's not our natural perspective, right? If you throw someone in the middle of suffering, that's not the first thing that they're going to think. It takes wisdom, as James talks about, to see our trials the same way that God does. And that's verses 5 to 8, right? And, and Quite frankly, for us, we know that, that wisdom is something that we often lack, especially in moments of suffering. But James teaches us in those verses 5 to 8 that God hasn't just left us on our own in our trials. Right? He hasn't just given us like a desired outcome and just kind of thrown us there and be like, hey, this is a destination, hope you end up there. No, God is with us in our trials. Right? He's walking with us. Uh, he is generously providing the wisdom that we need when we ask in faith. So, like we said last week, we can endure in trials because, one, God's purpose for them is our maturity and our joy. And then, two, God's provision in our trials is the wisdom that we need. Right? That's what we talked about last week. That's kind of where we left off. Well, as we continue, um, James talks about trials even more. And he gives us even more truths to kind of fortify our theology of suffering, our theology of trials that happen in our life. And so, for, ton for tonight, we're going to look at four more truths to remember in order to endure trials well. Okay, four more truths to remember to, to move towards Christ-likeness in our trials, that we need to keep these things in mind if we want to maximize all that God has intended for us in our trials. Okay, we'll start with the first one. Point number one is view life through who you are in Christ. View life through who you are in Christ. And this is in verses 9 to 11. Let me read those again for us. Uh, verse 9. James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also with the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So like I said, we're continuing in this general topic of trials here, right? And in verses 9 to 11, James brings up this specific example of a trial that his readers were probably experiencing, uh, namely the trial of poverty, right, of being rich, or uh, sorry, of being poor. And realize in that day, uh, the divide between those who were rich and those who were poor was probably a lot more distinct than maybe you, or, or you and I are used to, right? They didn't have like a middle class like we do today. And so for those who were poor, they were really poor. And for those who were rich, they were, they were really rich. And those are the two groups that, of people that James is talking to here. Right? He says, um, the lowly brother, so that's the poor. And then he's talking about the rich. Right? And if you look at it, James tells each of these groups to boast in something. 
he says, the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and the rich to boast in his humiliation. Now, this is really obvious, but we all boast in things that are important to us, right? Like, like none of us are going to boast about like how well we did on our sixth grade science project because um, no one cares about that, right? Like, no one even cares about how well you did on your AP test anymore. But you will boast, right? Or you will humble brag, or you will like post on Instagram, or you will, however you boast, uh, you will boast about where you got an interview, right? Or like how many friends you have, or where you were last night with your friends. Or you, bo you will boast about where you traveled over the break, right? By posting on these pictures and stuff. Why do we boast about those things? Because those things are important to us, right? Those things we think make us impressive to others. Um, we look to those things to contribute to how we would like to define ourselves in the eyes of other people, right? So that's a general idea of why we boast. And so here, James says, well, if you're a believer, then those things that you used to boast in, right, those things that you once considered important or valuable or that defined your identity, those things have changed. He says, for the lowly brother, uh, he says, don't make your identity about what you don't have. Right? Even if you don't have much in this life, uh, James says, you can boast in your future exaltation. You can boast in all that you have in Christ. Um, he turns to the rich, right? And, and when he mentions the rich here, uh, it's actually a little unclear whether James is talking to believers or non-believers here when he's talking about the rich. If he's talking to believers, I think he's reminding them not to boast in the things of this world, not to boast in what they have, um, but to boast in the things of God, right? Even if that means humiliation in the eyes of the world. If he's talking to non-believers, uh, I think James is being sarcastic, and he's saying that like when your riches fade away, when everything is said and done, you're going to have nothing, and you're going to be boasting. The only thing you can boast in is your humiliation, Right? There won't be anything left for them to boast in. But either way, I think what James is talking about here is our need to see and understand life rightly. He says, don't interpret life based on what you have. Don't even interpret it based on what you don't have. Right? If you're poor, don't, don't interpret it based on your poverty. Don't define everything according to your suffering or your absence of suffering. Rather, as believers, we need to see and we need to understand life through the lens of who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. And so what about you guys? What are the things that you boast in? Uh, what are the things that you go to to define your identity, to find value? And what are those things, both during your trials and also when things aren't going well? or are going well, sorry. And you're suffering. Let me ask you, are you able to, to see beyond your immediate circumstances to what you still have in Christ? Or in your successes, when you're not suffering, are you able to see past all the blessings and all the good things in your life, again, to what you have in Christ? I want you to think about the one thing in your life that is the most important to you. Okay, maybe for you, uh, your career, future career comes to mind, or acceptance into a certain grad school. Uh, maybe you think about a, a specific relationship in your life. You realize God could give you that thing tomorrow, and your identity in Christ would still be the most important thing about you because that doesn't fade away like everything else. 
same time, God could take that thing away from you. And still, who you are in Christ would still define you more than what you have lost. Right? That's what it means to see, who, see life through who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ. And I think for us, as much as we need to remember that in our trials, uh, remember this truth in our trials, often it's through trials that God teaches this to us. Right? It's through our experience of suffering that God brings us this clarity and brings us this wisdom that we lack. Right? This, this trial of poverty um, for these people is a reminder to them that riches don't last forever. James says even though the flowers, the grass, they might look nice and, and pretty today, that they're going to fade away. And if trials, right, if poverty, if it takes... Uh, something being taken away from you to remember that reality. If that's the way that God keeps us from placing our hope in the wrong things, then going back to what we talked about last week, right? James says that is reason for joy because it shows us really how the world works. It shows us uh, truth, right? And it makes us more like Christ. And so that's the first one is view life through who you are in Christ. Point number two, Recognize that trials can move you away from God or make you more like him. Recognize that trials can move you away from God or make you more like him. Verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Um, I think verse 12 is kind of just a restatement of a lot of the things that James has already talked about. Uh, But he says that steadfastness, right, endurance, under trial leads to a reward. And I want you to notice in verse 12 specifically that it's not just the reward of maturity. It's not just the reward of conformity into Christ-likeness in this life, which is a good thing, right? Verse 4. But James says in verse 12 that those who endure will receive the crown of life, right? They'll receive something not just for this life, but something in the life to come. Um, I think God's word says the same thing elsewhere. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he says that what you experience now, right, what you lose now in suffering is not even worth comparing to the, what you're going to get later on, right? It's like, it's not even a comparison. You shouldn't even put them side by side. Well, verse 12 gives us one way that we can respond in our trials, which is steadfastness, which is endurance. Then I think verse 13 gives us another kind of response. Right, look at what he says. He says, let no one say, When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, when we get to verse 13, it might seem like James kind of just, like, switches the topic, right? He brings up this idea of temptation, um, and he's just moving from trials to temptation, but uh, he's talking about something related here, okay? In fact, that word there for trial and the word for temptation are actually the same root word in the Greek, okay? It's the same word. And I think there's uh, similarities between those two, right? Both trials and temptations are both fundamentally tests of your faith, right? And the way that we define that is they help to reveal the true nature of something. Right? Trials and temptations both reveal uh, the reality of your faith. That's what the word means, test or, or temptation or trial. But there is a distinction between those, and that's why James switches the words. And I think maybe the best way that we can understand that distinction has to do with 
direction and outcome. Okay, direction and outcome. That trials can you trials can either move you in one direction or another. That on one hand, like we learned, they can either move you towards spiritual maturity. They can either uh, serve to grow you and, and form you into Christ-likeness. Right? Trials can do that. But on the other hand, they can move you away from God. They can move you towards sin and ultimately towards spiritual death. And that's what James means by temptation. Now, I think probably the clearest explanation of this uh, is just our own experience, isn't it? Like when, think about it, when, when something doesn't go our way, we can complain, right? We can grow bitter rather than trust God. Or when someone wrongs us, when that trial happens in our life, uh, we can sin, right? We can seek revenge rather than seek forgiveness. Or when money is short, we can become even more stingy, right? We can grasp even more tightly to what we have rather than be sacrificially generous, So you get the idea, right? Trials can lead us in one direction or another. And specifically in these verses, in our trials, James says that we can be tempted to question or doubt the character of God. Okay, so for example, financial difficulty, when when money is short, it can tempt us to question God's providence, right? Whether God really gives us what he promises to give us. Or you think about the death of a loved one, that can tempt us to question God's love or question whether he's really in control. Um... The trial of uh, the success of someone less deserving than we, we think they are, right? That can tempt us to question God's justice, right? Is he even fair? How can that person be further along than I am? And I think that's what we see in verse 13, right? He said, James says, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And what he's saying there, realize, is not just like some isolated theological question. He's not just asking about who or what is the source of temptation? Okay, it's a bigger question that is going on there, and it's a question of what is God trying to do in your trial? What is God after in your trial? And ultimately, what kind of God is he in your trial? Like, that's the bigger question behind verse 13. And so, what about you? Have you asked those kinds of questions of God before in your trials? And I know for us, we might not use those exact words, right? For us, we might say things like, it's not fair. Or we might say, uh, like, why is this happening to me, right? When, when hard things happen in your life. But when you think even about those questions, like, those are really questions directed at God, about God, aren't they? Right? God, when we say it's not fair, we're saying God's not fair. And when we say, why is this happening to me? We're saying, God, how could you allow this to happen to me? I think one of the ways that this plays out practically is when we blame God rather than take responsibility for our sin. And realize that's been a tendency of the human heart ever since the beginning of creation. I right? think back to Adam and Eve. Remember uh, what Adam said when, when God asked him why he ate the fruit? He said, God, that woman that you gave to me made me do it. Right? He blames Eve and he blames God. That, he says, God, you're the one who put me in this impossible situation. And I think we can do that too, can't we? Now for us, we can often blame difficult people. We can blame difficult circumstances in our lives for why we respond sinfully. And ultimately, uh, again, that's pointing the finger at God, right? That's questioning the kind of God that he is. Uh, that's, that's what's going on in verse 13 there. 
Well, what's James's answer? He says, uh, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So again, James is giving more than just a textbook theological answer here. Okay? He's not even just like, def- he's not even just only defending God. He's not just saying like, oh, making sure that God's hands are clean type of thing. What James is doing here is he really is correcting wrong thinking about the goodness and the character of God. And James is showing us that God is for us in our trials and in our temptations. And so if the question is, what is God trying to do in your trials? What kind of God is he? And James's answer is, well, first of all, it's absolutely impossible for God to tempt you, right? It's absolutely impossible uh, for him to have anything evil to do with you. And not only that, his intentions for you are good, right? That he is not trying to lure you into sin, that he's not after your downfall. He's not waiting for you to fail. James says that God has no evil desires whatsoever. That it is impossible for him to do or purpose anything in your life that is even tainted with an ounce of harmful or evil intentions. Um, As Pastor Kim often puts it, he says, there's nothing that comes into your life without first passing through the filter of God's love. And so when it comes to trials and temptations, I think just from this point, we need to first recognize that God's intended purposes for us in our trials are not automatic. Okay, they can lead us in one direction or another, that we are responsible for how we respond. We're moving towards godliness or we're moving towards sin. And so the question is, how do we make sure that our trials are leading us in the right direction? Well, that leads us to our next two points. Okay, so point number three. It's understand the nature of your sinful heart. Understand the nature of your sinful heart. So if temptation doesn't come from God, right, then, then where does it come from? And James gives us the answer in verse 14. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. I might have said this last week, but this passage shows us that our greatest danger in trials is our sinful hearts, right? It's not what's happening to us. It's our desires. It's our hearts. The greatest threat to us spiritually in this life isn't our suffering, but our sin. In fact, that, that threat is so significant. It's so dangerous that God sometimes uses the pain and the loss of suffering in order to remove that from our lives, right? In order to grow us in holiness. And here in these verses, uh, James kind of like peels back the curtain, so to speak, and he helps us to understand the nature of sin. So if you look at some of the words he uses, he uses kind of a strange imagery there of, uh, of pregnancy, of giving birth, right? and he describes these different stages of sin. Verse 15, he says, Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives or brings forth death. Now, there's a lot in there, um, but let me just mention a couple clarifying ideas I, I think we see in these verses. First, James clarifies the distinction between temptation and sin. Okay, the distinction between temptation and sin. That they're not the same thing. And I think that's important for us to know because some of you here tonight might feel guilty because you experience temptation or because you experience a certain kind of temptation. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, 
good, mature Christians just don't experience those kinds of temptations anymore. Like you still are tempted to lust, or you still get angry, or you're still tempted to indulge in the things of the world. Shouldn't you be past that already? Maybe some of you uh, have thought that of yourself. Well, that's not what God does. Do you know how, how Jesus responds to your temptations according to Scripture? He doesn't respond with condemnation, but in Hebrews it says that he responds with sympathy. Right? That's what he gives us in our temptations. What he says isn't, how could you? Like, shouldn't you be further along? What he says is, I know what it's like. And in the heat of temptation, I think that's encouragement for us, right? To, to take heart and to keep going on, to keep fighting. Because Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Since he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. I think one uh, implication of this, if, if temptation and sin are not the same thing, it means that we can't give up too soon. Okay, we can't give up too soon. We have to keep fighting. I think for many of us, we feel like we've already lost the second that, that like, inclination or that desire to sin enters our mind. Right? We feel like we're already behind. What's the point of fighting if we've already got one foot out the door? But realize God has promised hope for us in our temptations. And he says, pray, you know, that, that God would not lead you into temptation. He's given us his word, which promises us things in our temptations. And he's given us help in the most intense moments of temptation, in the moments that we need the most. So that's the first, I think, clarification I think this, this verse makes for us, that temptation and sin are not the same thing, so we keep fighting in those moments of temptation. Second, James clarifies that the primary battleground for fighting sin and temptation is at the level of desire. And it's the level of our hearts. Um, that language there of being lured or enticed is this picture of uh, a fishing, right? A, of a fish being lured or enticed by the bait on a hook. And the reason why temptation is attractive and enticing and difficult to resist is because it targets those things that we want, right? It targets the things that are appealing to us. Um, <clears throat> one piece of advice that the, the staff gave me here before I started working here full-time was to try to bring my lunch as much as possible, bring my lunch from home. Um, because otherwise, I was just going to be tempted to just always buy food from somewhere. And if you know Torrance, you know that there's like so much good food around here, right? And literally, there's going to be at least one person on staff every day that orders something. So it's super easy to just end up buying something like every single day. Uh, it, it's, it's really a struggle. <laughs> Um, but he, and even when I do bring lunch, like, I'll still give in sometimes um, because they're ordering something better than what I brought. Uh, and I'll bring, like, my salad home, and, and Brie will ask me, hey, like, why do you still have your lunch? And I'll be like, they got Japanese food today. And it, yeah, I'm just weak like that. <laughs> now, there are certain places or there are certain types of food that are just, like, super hard for me to say no to. Um, like if, if the staff orders from Matatsumi, I don't know if you guys have been there, it's, it's a really good Japanese spot, really close to church. If they order from Matatsumi, I just like forget my lunch, I'm going to order Matatsumi. On the other hand, there are places I would never order food from. Like I just not eat rather than order food from there. Um, like just zero appeal to me. Uh, like there's this one place that Pastor David likes, which is, uh, <laughs> which is a, a vegetarian Indian place. And for me, like, I'm not a huge fan of Indian food, but not only is it Indian food, it's vegetarian Indian food. 
And so, like, I'm, I'm never going to order that. That's, that's not tempting to me at all, right? Like, I don't find that desirable at all. Well, that's what temptation does, right? It attacks our, those things that are appealing to us. That's what makes them tempting. And these desires can be straight-up sinful desires, right? Or they can be good desires that have gone wrong. For example, you might desire control. And when things don't go according to plan then you might be tempted to rely even more on yourself because you can't release your grip on control, right? Rather than, than rely on God. Or you might desire approval. And when your relationships go wrong or awry, then you might be tempted to look for approval somewhere else rather than be drawn to God and, and seek his approval. See, in our moments of trial, it's not the trials themselves that cause us to sin. Rather, what those trials do is that they expose what's happening in our hearts. Right? We talked about that water bottle, bottle illustration last week. They just show us what's already inside. They expose what we really desire. Do we desire Christ-likeness to be made more into the image of Christ, which is what James says trials are moving us towards, or do we desire something else? And so what are those desires for you? Um, Think about the ways in, in which you're tempted in your hard times, right? What are the things that you really want? What are the, the areas of temptation for you when things are hard? Can you trace that back to your desires? Can you trace that back to what's happening on the level of your heart? Um, I, th- I think one helpful way to identify those desires or idols, as we often call them, is to ask, are you willing to sin to get it? Or do you sin because you don't have it? Right? Are you willing to sin to get this one desire, or do you sin because you don't have it fulfilled? And so the battleground is the heart. So we need to be aware uh, of our hearts, of our desires, especially in moments of temptation and trial. All right, last point here, point number four. Trust in the unchanging character of God. Trust in the unchanging character of God. Uh, like I said last week, <clears throat> We suffer well not just by becoming suffering experts or becoming temptation experts, but really by knowing God well, right? By knowing who he is in the midst of our suffering and temptations. And I think that's how James closes this section here. Uh, in verse 16, James says, do not be deceived, right? He says, beloved brothers, do not be deceived. And what he's talking about there is being deceived about who God is. And I think he uses that word very intentionally, that we can doubt, we can be deceived about the, the character of God. We can be deceived about what God is like in the midst of our suffering. And that word deceived means that it can be really subtle. Right? And so to guard us from deception, here's truth about who God is. Verse 17, James says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Um, James says that God is the father of lights. So what he's talking about there, he's saying that God is the one who made the sun and the stars, uh, the lights in our galaxy. He put them in their place. And even though he created them, he is unlike them in that he doesn't change. Right? As constant as the sun is in running its course, in rising and setting every day, God is even more unchanging than that. That in him, James says, God has no variation or shadow of change. And so, if that's true, 
then I think one implication for us means that, or one implication is that your present experience of trials is no indication of change on God's part. Okay, just because you're experiencing trials doesn't mean God has changed. Because he doesn't change. And yet, when trials come, I think it's often the hardest time for us to believe that, right? Like, God's promises when we're in trials, God's promises must not be valid right now because, like, I'm not seeing an answer, right? Or, or my experience of suffering must mean that God's love for me has changed in some way. Maybe he loves me less right now than he did before. See, I think it's out of the fact that God is unchanging that we need to interpret what James means by every good and every perfect gift. That we can't interpret good and perfect based on what we believe to be good and perfect. Why? Because we change, right? Our taste, our opinions, our understanding. Uh, think about it. Like, we might consider something good now, but then later we change our minds about it. Or we might, we might think something is not good right now, and then later on, we actually realize it's good, right? Looking back in retrospect. So we don't know what's actually good. We don't know what's actually perfect. But here, James says God doesn't change. And so if he says that something is good, and he says that something is perfect, then we need to trust him, even if we can't see how that could be true in the moment right now. I know verse 17 uh, is, is one of those verses that comes up often at like baby showers and graduations and weddings and like just really happy celebratory occasions like that. Um, you've probably seen it on a plaque or like a picture frame. But I think if everything that James says about trials here is true, then I think that we can say that even our trials are good and perfect gifts from above. Right? Because they work for our sanctification. They come from an unchanging God who is for us. Right, who wants to make us more into the image of Christ. Look at verse 18. I know verse 17 is the very famous popular verse, but there's so much in verse 18 as well. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And when James says that God brought us forth by the word of truth, um, he's talking about this doctrine called regeneration there. And regeneration is uh, just God's act of making us born again, right? God uh, giving us new life. And I want you, what I want you to notice is just how different this picture is in verse 18 from that picture that we have of sin in verse 15. See, it's that sin in verse 15 seeks your death, right? But here, verse 18, God is after your new birth. He is after your life and your growth. Verse 15, sin targets and it distorts and it perverts our fallen desires. Verse 18, God renews us. He regenerates us. He gives us new and transformed desires. And so from beginning to end, right, God is working for your salvation. It says in verse 18 that it was of his own will that he brought you forth by the word of truth. What that means is it was God's own doing. It was God's own initiative to save you, to change your heart, to give you a new heart, um, to make you born again. Right? That's the very beginning of our salvation. Verse 12, it says that he rewards those who endure in the end with the crown of life. That's the very end. And until then, in the in-between, right, God is working even in our trials to make us more like Christ. There's one more word there I want to point out. It's the word first fruits. Um, first fruits is talking about, uh, it refers to a foreshadowing of something greater to come. 
Okay, in other words, if you weren't sure that your own salvation was important enough to God for him to see you through from beginning to end, right? In case you weren't sure that God cared about your salvation enough, James says that this new life and this growth and this salvation has been God's agenda, not just for you, right, as the first fruits, but for all of creation. That you're just this foretaste of this bigger and more glorious mission and plan and agenda that God is carrying out. And that is the glorious end that he is after. And so God, if God is in the business of saving you, conforming you into the image of Christ, then how could you doubt that God is out to tempt you in your trials, that he's out to cause you to sin, uh, that he's after your downfall, right? For all of history, from beginning to end, he's been after your salvation. And you're just the first fruits. You're just the, the foreshadowing of this greater plan that God is bringing uh, to fruition. Let me close with this. Uh, as we're talking about trials and temptations, I know that many of you uh, might be thinking about that like one particular trial in your life, right, that, that this passage might speak to. Um, and that's good, right? I want you to be specific. Remember, we live life in specifics, not in generalities. But at the same time, I want you to realize that what we're talking about here really is the entirety of your Christian life, right? That God is committed to refining our faith and making us into what verse 4 says, right? To, to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And to get there, it's a process that takes time, right? He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. So it's going to take more than one trial. It's going to take more than one temptation. It's going to take more than one season of your life. It's going to take us to remain steadfast under trial and to keep trusting in the character of God for in the entirety of our lives. Now, I know I've said this a lot already in these first two messages, but um, I think James really is building this first chapter on who we understand God to be in our trials. That who we understand God to be is going to be the difference in how we respond in our suffering. That if we believe that God isn't good, or right, if we believe that he's just toying with us, just trying to expose us, just trying to pick us apart for no good reason, then we won't run to God, we'll run away from him. That you won't embrace your trials, you will reject them. You will look for every reason in the world to avoid them. But if we know well the character of God, then we are well-equipped. Right? We are well-prepared with his purposes in mind before trials come. We are humbly surrendered even when we're in the middle of trials. And we are set up well even after we give in. And that's what I want to end with, end with uh, tonight. Right? Before trials, during trials, but what about after? And by, by after, what I mean is that when temptation comes, what are you going to do when you fail the test? Right? What are you going to do when, when trials come and you don't respond rightly and you fall short and trials lead you to sin rather than to godliness? That all of us, however well-equipped we might be with this solid theology of suffering, we will all fall short at one point or another. That the thing that God brings into your life to test you and to refine your faith rather than make you better uh, might cause you to doubt the character of God and make you fall into sin. What do you do then? What do you do when you've failed the test? I think for us, um, 
I think sometimes we can treat our experience of temptation like a college class, right? Where everything, like whether you pass or fail this class, depends on like one or two exams that you take. And that's why like some of you drop your classes like in week four because you just bombed your midterm and you're like, there's no way I'm passing this. And I think sometimes that's how we think about temptation in our life. Right? That's how we think about trials. God sends this thing into our life and we respond poorly and we're like, okay, just might as well drop it, right? Might as well just wallow in despair until next time. And here's what I want to leave you with. God is gracious, right? And he is sovereign and he is loving and he is wise and he refines us through not only the moments that we are fighting temptation, but even in those moments that after we've given into it after you have fallen into temptation is when you just as desperately need to remember the character of God. Like we said earlier, he is not after your downfall. In fact, it's in those moments of turning to God after sin and temptation that he grows us the most. That's what happened with the Apostle Peter. Um, In Luke chapter 22, 31 to 34, there's a conversation between Peter and Jesus where Jesus tells him, Um, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And you guys know the story, right? Peter just refuses to believe it. And of course, we know what happened, right? Peter failed the test. But in that passage, we also get a glimpse of who God is, both in the midst of Peter's testing, as well as after Peter fails. And Jesus tells Peter, uh, verse 31 to 32, he says, Satan demanded to have you, right? Satan wanted you. He was after your downfall, that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See what God is doing in the midst of your trials? He is actively sustaining. He's praying for you. He's holding you up in the moment of trial and temptation. He's not just wondering if you're going to stand or if you're going to fall. But there's more to that, right? He tell, he, Jesus also tells Peter what's going to happen after. We know Peter is going to deny Jesus, but this is what Jesus says. He says, when you have turned again, After all that happens, after you've failed the test, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what you need to do when you fall. That's what you need to do when you fail the test. When you fall, get up. This is another opportunity to trust in the character of God. Who will he be to you then? And when you fall, that is another opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness and even to grow and to strengthen those around you. Right? So that is the God that James is like putting on display for us to trust in our trials. He's not tr- trying to lead us into sin. He's not just trying to pick us apart or expose us. Sin is painful when, it, when it's being exposed and revealed in our lives. But he's after our good. Right? Trials are a grace to us. Suffering is a grace to us. And so we can trust him. He's unchanging. Every good and every perfect gift comes from him, even our suffering. Let's pray. Father, we know that uh, what we need most is uh, a right vision of you. Uh, And we need that most desperately in our moments of suffering and our moments of trial. And so, Father, I pray that you would really just ingrain that in our hearts. Help us to not doubt your character Um, when things change in our lives. Help us to know that you don't change and that what you bring into our lives is always good. It's always perfect. It's always working to make us more like Christ. 
And so with that knowledge of who you are, um, help us to grow in, in whatever suffering, whatever trials, even whatever temptations um, enter into our life. God, we thank you uh, that we can know you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.